Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, I've spoken in the past on this podcast about the role of monetary policy. And is it in fact working? Can it stave off recession, for example? Well, today, another question. How much control do central banks actually have on the money supply? Given that the vast majority of money isn't created by central banks, it's created by commercial banks when they issue loans. So does there need to be more control on how money is created? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. Well, money supply, uh, you might have thought, is controlled by central banks. But, of course, regular listeners to this podcast will know that that's not really the case. 97% of money today is created by commercial banks when they give loans. The other 3% is cash. And I suspect that proportion is going to dwindle away over the next decade as cash becomes even less important. So, Steve, I mean, this is acknowledged, I think, isn't it, by most people, maybe not the general public, but economists get it, you'd hope, and those who study this field. The Bank of England's pretty clear on it. If you go to an excellent part of the Bank of England website, which is called Knowledge Bank, there's a section there on how money is created. And they say most of the money in the economy is created not by printing presses at the central bank, but by commercial banks when they provide loans. And of course, a lot of those loans are for housing, aren't they? So does that mean when house prices rise too fast and people hold off buying so that the demand for loans is not increasing as fast as the repayment on existing loans, so that means the money supply shrinks. If there's less money around, each pound is worth more. So don't we get deflation, or at least don't we get very low inflation uh, at, a, at a time when we don't want that to happen. Hmm. A few interesting thoughts there. First of all, one of the one of the reasons that the um, um, housing market is so bizarre compared to uh, standard commodity markets is that people actually the demand for housing will go up quite frequently when the rate of change of house prices goes up. Uh, people don't rush out and buy more carrots when carrot prices are rising, mm. and the uh, and the news newscasters don't say good news. Carrots are up twelve percent this month, uh, <laughs> right. but uh, they do say that. That's about cause, cause, yeah, because they're a Ponzi scheme, and we don't uh, uh, carrots yeah, aren't involved in Ponzi schemes. So what, what you actually find is rather than rather than the reverse relationship you're talking about applying in the data, it's the positive relationship. When there's a rising level of house prices, uh, that feeds back into the supply of money because people then. Uh, the, the, the classic acronym FOMO, fear of missing out. Mm. And if you see rising house prices, you think, oh, my God, I, I better get in now before it gets too expensive for the deposit that I've managed to scrape together. Yeah. Uh, and also in speculators, oh, wow, here's the next rising asset market. Let's get in there. Right. Till we, so hit, till we hit a crash, though, till we hit a point where we go, oh, my God, uh, house prices are now just too crazy. They're going to start falling. Then everyone gets out of the market, that means less people are asking for loans, and then we see the money supply shrink. Well, that then then what you I mean this is this is one of those areas where the where housing market requires very, very different analysis to any other market, uh, with the exception of the share market to some extent, though the share market is is, is not as confusing again as housing. Um, because 
there is a, if you imagine uh, the, the, the standards, if it says supply and demand, uh, supply is tight, therefore prices rise. That's about as far as the, the conventional analysis goes. Uh, of course, that doesn't help because, as one of my colleagues, uh, Cameron, Cameron Pickering back in Australia, made the point that that is an argument for volatility, not for house prices rising. Because if you argue there's a very, if you think in conventional supply and demand curves, you know, you draw your two lines on the page of paper, one of them is pretty much vertical, uh, the other is pretty much uh, you know, sort of downward sloping, but pretty close to horizontal. You slide the, the downward sloping and up and down, uh, you'll get large changes in price for small changes. In, in demand mm. because there's no flexibility to supply. Uh, but it, it works both ways. So it doesn't really give you an explanation as to why house prices are rising. And what you see is people will, um, will, will uh, twofold, they will see if house prices are rising at all, if there's any momentum to house prices initially, but if it just, you know, like a, um, let's say you have a, a soldiers returning home from war, which was certainly the case back in the 1940s and 50s, uh, giving a bit of a spike to house prices because they've got new monetary demand there and therefore house prices start to rise and people think, oh, this is a trend. So I want to get in there before it falls out. I'm going to go and borrow money from a bank to go and buy into this uh, into this, this rising house prices, uh, either you know what the, the negative motivation, fear of missing out or the positive motivation, I'm going to make money selling my house because the house prices are rising. Mm. That feeds back to demand for money, yeah. Because this is this is the important point in the uh, and demand for money equals money supply, basically, doesn't it? I mean, banks are, uh, you know, obviously there's upper limits, but they're going to create as much money as there's demand for. This is the point that was first raised by Basil Moore, uh, the, lead, the the person who gave birth again to the understanding that loans create deposits, not vice versa, mm. and. Uh, and, and and Basil's point was that there is that the conventional analysis of, of, of everything in economics they try to shove under two intersecting lines. But that's you know two two. If you want to if you want to do economic analysis, throw four chopsticks on the on the on the ground. <laughs> make sure two of them form a form a perfect ninety degree angle where the other two intersect. That's the marketplace. That's about as far as the analysis goes. Um, but what Basil said is, in the case of of money. There is no independent uh, supply curve of money, um, and and neoclassical economics tried to shove um, this into existence by saying, well, in fact, what banks are doing is simply intermediating between people who have money uh, that they would like to. Um, they've got two possibilities with the money: they can spend it or they can invest it by lending it out to somebody else. And therefore, if you if you if you want to entice them to uh, lend, then a high interest rate is going to mean they want to lend more. A low interest rate means you're going to want to lend less. Bingo! You've got a you've got a rising supply curve. That's that's the mm. the supply. And then the demand curve is the standard old story. The more expensive money, the lower the demand. The cheaper the money is, the higher the demand. Bingo! Two intersecting lines. Demand's downward sloping, supply upward sloping, and the interest rate intermediates between the two. That's that's loanable funds or part of loanable funds. Um, now that that is to- totally. Uh, empirically false, such as structurally false, because uh, and this is, and Basil was the first person to regenerate this knowledge because the knowledge did exist prior to uh, people like Tobin coming along uh, in, in the American American neoclassical economists. Of course, the main um, pusher of this theory, uh, and frankly, I think the word pusher is quite appropriate, is is Paul Krugman. Um, they they push this supply and demand analysis, but what. What um, Basil pointed out is that banks create money simply by 
putting uh, an, an entry in the asset column of their ledger, an extra, they, you come to a, to a bank asking for a loan, they say, that's a great idea, here's a million dollars, Phil. Yeah. Um, and then, then they put a million dollars in your bank account, and then you use that million dollars to buy a house, which you couldn't otherwise afford to buy. So, so that 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 is the, the, therefore the the supply is what is equivalent to what the demand is. Yeah, and, and that's as I said in my introduction, that is that's commonly accepted wisdom these days, isn't it? That you know, I mean, as I say, the Bank of England themselves is saying, "Hey, look, ninety seven percent of money is created by commercial banks." Uh, you know, central banks don't. Or the only influence they have, obviously, for central banks is is the their influence on interest rates. And I wonder how much that is overstated because the interest rate is basically how much you're paying the central bank when you're taking money from them uh, to put in reserves so that you can settle transactions between banks. But uh, so if I buy from you, my bank has to pay your bank. And so that has to go through the, the central bank and the bank central bank s- settles those transfers. So you've got to have money sitting in the central bank reserves and that's the interest rate you pay for that. But I mean, that's only a small proportion because if you've got two, first of all, you know, a lot of banks are just trading between themselves without going through the central bank. And if you've got two large banks with an equal number of transactions in either way, then they're not going to need to uh, pay any interest whatsoever. So the, the role of the central bank in that case is very minimal, isn't it? And who cares about the interest no, rate? No, look, it's actually, there's actually, I'm, I've, I've got to say something which, I mean, you, you better, I'm happy you're sitting down, Phil. Right. You're sitting down? Yeah, look, I am, always. Yeah, you yeah, have yeah. a cup of coffee? Okay. I'm always sedentary, yeah. There's a good documentary from the Reserve Bank of Australia. Right, wow. Okay, so I've said this, this second positive Jeez. thing I said about the Reserve Bank of Australia, probably in my lifetime, the first being... Uh, We're feeling the, the love, uh, Steve. The, the Fisher and Kent uh, analysis of the 1890s versus the 1930s in Australia, which is an exceptionally good analysis of why the 19, 1890s was the worst depression for Australia than the 1930s. So there's two good things that the Reserve Bank has done, and one is explain the role of open market, open, uh, market operation, what they call OMO. Yeah. Um, in, in setting the interest rate. So it isn't the fact you've got to pay money to get the reserves from the bank, from the, to get reserves from the central bank, because uh, when you have a, a inverted commas normal functioning system, banks keep reserves at the absolute minimal level they can, yeah. uh, because it's just a cost for them. Um, but with the with what they do, with the, once, the, once the bank has set uh, a target interest rate, then it will use its capacity, unlimited capacity, to buy and sell bonds with the financial sector to ensure that the the, the, the short end of the market, the the, 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 the 30-day, three-month, one-year yeah. uh, bonds are trading within the band they set uh, for interest rates. So back in the days when Vockler set interest rates at something like 17%, uh, that, that sort of... You know, that virtually defined how the uh, how the public feels about inflation in those days, because bang, it got hit with this enormous interest rate because of high rates of inflation. That uh, the, the the real the real rate was actually quite small. In fact, it was often negative. But the the, the high nominal rate was was you know scarred into people's brains. Um, that would be saying, okay, we're then going to if if the price of the bond starts to to, to, to rise, therefore the interest rates are falling outside the band we're trying to set, then we're going to get there and we're going to start selling bonds and drive the prices down again and push the bonds and push the interest rate back up. And, and so the, because they've got an unlimited capacity to do that, it's really the, the banding they can do with open market operations to control the fluctuations at the short end of the, of the interest rate spectrum. That's what 
the what's but, there in but, so bonds, not the but how, how does but how does that influence you know my bank transacting with your bank and and the cost of them uh, managing this, those transactions this, this is one of the ones that it's, it took me a while to get my head around why this matters uh, and and I find a lot of my friends in banking um, you know in the classic case who can't see the forest for the trees. Mm. Uh, is that the right way? That it is? You can't see the trees for the forest or the forest for the trees? The forest you can't for see the, the forest for the trees. Okay, yeah, okay. yeah, you're in the midst okay. of it all. And, and I think that goes on a lot in the finance world, doesn't it? Because it's such it does, a it segmented does. world. Everyone does their job. They haven't really got an idea of how the system works. I, I could get more obscene and say other things they can't see as well. But still, let's, let's keep along with this one. Um, what they would say is, look, we don't we don't uh, create loans. We borrow money and we lend it out. And this is you have friends who are involved in a particular Australian friend I'm thinking of here who is adamant about this point for some time um they said we are always going out and borrowing money and then we lend and i thought well when i do the accounting of that you can't um uh, that that is only a margin game if you're borrowing money and then lending it again at a higher rate you're only getting a marginal and you're not creating any money it just doesn't make sense Mm. what i realized was the type of borrowing that banks are doing is long term. They borrow long term. They might you, when you when you lend your money to a bank in this situation, you're locking it away. You don't you don't have demand deposit as we have with our deposit accounts. You you uh, you know you 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 sell a you, you buy a bond off the bank. Yeah, for thirty bank. years, for example. That's right. Okay. And if no, in the United States, we're even talking about fifty or hundred years because yeah, there's no but, yield on thirty. What that means is when you look at your equity position, you can count either shares the shares your bank has sold or the long term debt the bank has as part of your capital or equity. Mm-hmm. And so the way that a bank operates is by having initially raising uh, uh, raising money either through normally through a share issue uh, or, or a, you know, but, you know, I've got a few friends have started, literally I have friends have started banks uh, and they will raise money from, from uh, uh, the, the bank of FFF, friends, family and fools, uh, or they'll issue, issue bonds from a company and then that gives them long-term capital. And that goes into the equity, and they have zero assets and zero liabilities at that stage. They then lend against, uh, they, they lend by creating assets and creating a liability at the same time. So their assets and liabilities rise. What they're doing is they're gearing up their equity. So a conservative bank might have, say, like, a, it might say, start with 100 million. Uh, with a 10 to 1 factor, it can create a billion worth of, worth of loans out of that over time. And then the, the, the payment of interest on those loans goes back to enhance its, its equity and so on. But fundamentally, when a, bank, when, a, when a bank is leveraging up its capital base, where its capital base consists of either shares or long-term debt. So that's why the banks borrow, to get the long-term debt that they can then lever up. And that's why they do the, the creation of money, so if th- therefore the cost of that long-term debt does factor into the cost of money they're going to charge out to you, so they've, they've, it, it isn't the. But only by a factor of one to ten. I mean, it's not. Uh, it's not all at that percentage rate, is it? No, I mean, they, they, they're going to want to make it if they're if they're borrowing long term at you know four three percent, they're going to want to lend to you at five or six. They've got their own costs to cope with as well. Right, but if they're creating that money, this is I'm so I'm getting very confused by all of this because they're yeah. creating that money. They only need to have that capital there. Uh, in reserve, so if uh, you know, if everyone was to demand all their money back, so that's it's why not, you know, that's, it's not the reserve side; it's the equity side. Sorry, a bad choice yeah. of words. And it's on the equity yeah. side. So, yeah. but they yeah. they don't need that for all of my loan. They are creating my loan ten times what they have in in equity. Mm. So the interest rate that applies for that longer term bond 
only applies to one tenth of that money that they're creating. Yeah, they can. They can. Then that's one of the calculations a bank will do. They 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 are the only business which can lever up like that. Mm. That's why banking is a privilege. Right. It's, it's, it's not just a, a power, it's a privilege as well because you only get the capacity to act as a bank if you go through a registration process that says, okay, we're going to let you do this. And that, in that sense, it's, it's just like uh, the, pub, the public spectrum, uh, the radio spectrum in that sense. Uh, it's, it's something which nobody can own um, apart from the national government of the region who can say, okay, we're going to, let you, we're going to auction off the radio spectrum. Um, that's that's why you know we have radio stations are controlled and in that uh, in that sense so or so should be banks but once we've um, you know you, you you realize you only have the right to operate as a radio station because you've purchased part of the spectrum uh, of this of the state which allows you to broadcast that that frequency in that region a similar thing applies to banking you only become a bank if you if the if the if the authority the the national authority says okay we've looked at your equity you've got the equity we require you look like you've got the management skills the 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 the, the, the infrastructure is there we're going to let you operate as a bank um, so but that that comes with the with rights with there's that right uh, should come with responsibilities as well but people have completely forgotten that so banks get away with blue murder uh, but yes yeah, so overall it's the fact that they can lever up their equity base is something no other business can do Right. So, so you, basically, what you're saying is that this open monetary committee approach, which each central bank has, is working. They are, so in effect, they are restricting the access to to bonds. So they're, so they're, I mean, they're buying bonds. They're restricting access. So they're pushing up the, uh, the either pushing up the price or lowering the price depending well, they're, on. They're setting a price which they can control at the short end. They can't control the long end anywhere near as much, which is why I think we saw the the uh, uh, the, the the famous inversion that occurred in America in the last couple of months with the short rates being lower than the long rates being lower, lower than the short rates. Mm. Um, that to me was not the usual signal of a recession, but the fact that the reserve attempt to push up rates at the bottom end was not being transmitted through. Uh, people, the, 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 central, the, the, the central bank was seeing inflation in the future that everybody else was not seeing, and therefore the short rate went up because they can control it using open market operations. The long rates didn't budge, and you got a yield curve inversion. Yeah. Uh, but, but fundamentally, the, the bank does have the capacity to set that short rate, so they do have control over the price, but the point they realised when they were going through all the Vokla stuff about they cannot control the monetary aggregates. No, well, I mean, because lowering rates, uh, you know, the assumption is that's going to encourage people, to, banks to create more loans and therefore create more money. But of course, we know that doesn't happen. Banks can't loan to people if they don't want to borrow. And right now, perhaps there's not a big appetite for borrowing. And and that's the issue. It's really it comes down to what is the demand for credit right now. What what is and, and I define credit by the way, this is I've had a debate with some of my mathematical friends on this front. Uh, Matthias Grisselli, the guy that I'm doing the uh, the work with the uh, on um, uh, bringing energy into economic theory with, and he says, look, everybody else calls loans credit, and you call loans loans and credit. You call the change in loans, and uh, my attitude there is. We have such confusion in the whole monetary area. We need to get our terms right, right from the outset. So I define debt as the dollar value that is owed by uh, owed by anybody to anybody else. That's the, that's that is debt, which is denominated in dollars. I define credit as the annual change in debt. So one is a stock, and the other is a flow. And if you look at the um, uh, the the the, the uh, rate of growth of the money supply because change in loans, which is credit, is creating an identical amount of money, then it's the demand for credit 
which is actually going to set how much money money supply changes. And if you have the situation when right now, where in America's case, private debt is 1.5 times GDP, it picked the 1.7 during the crisis, but it's 1.5 times now. Uh, at that level, the amount of demand for for new debt is fairly anemic and therefore you haven't got much credit demand. The money supply is growing slowly at the same time that the central banks would like it to grow quickly. No. By dropping the interest rate, they can occur. But as you say, that doesn't work when people are carrying out large amounts of debt right now and are uncertain about the future. So they've got no control. they should be. Yeah, yeah. So they have no control in that case. I mean, the, whatever central banks do, the instruments they've got, they're not going to do any. Which I guess is why central banks are saying, well, we've gone as far as we can. The, the, the you know, common voice from all central banks, or a lot of them right now, is we've gone as far as we can go. It's got to be fiscal stimulus. The governments have got to, yeah. got to get, get involved now and start pumping money into, into the economy. It's almost as though they've been listening to this podcast yeah well <laughs> i think some of them are but i would know but let's not go there this is hello um <laughs> <Morning>. so, <laughs> with the and like the, mark carney really surprised me on that front too i must say a few weeks ago as we discussed but yeah the what they've not that he's is, listening to this podcast it would be nice no, welcome okay. mike uh, mark if you are listening we'll there's, get your name right as well there's a sense of impotence among central banks now because if you look back historically we go back to the milton friedman days uh, milton friedman persuaded central banks because they wanted to be persuaded, they're fundamentally neoclassical economists, uh, persuaded them that the money supply is completely under the control of the central bank, which is where the whole idea of helicopter money came in. The helicopter was an analogy to a exogenous system. So you have a market economy, which controls goods and services. You have this exogenous system called the central bank that created the amount of money in the system. And because Milton presumed the economy was fully employed at the, at the equilibrium level, um, then all the change in the money supply would do is change the rate of price change. So the simple formula Milton gave them was restrict the rate of growth of the money supply, which of course is under your control, and you will cause inflation to fall. Now, um, that was when when you look at the way they drew the diagrams, they they, they would draw these again. It's, this is you know, chopsticks on the ground stuff. Um, they drop one of the chaps chopsticks vertically and say that's the money supply. That's parallel to the y-axis, mm. and therefore we've got complete control over that. We can move it sideways, and because moving it out uh, is going to make more money available, that's going to drive the price down. Then. Uh, in that sense, they saw changing interest rate as equivalent to changing the amount of money in the economy. So they put up interest rates dramatically under Voclap to, to, you know, from sort of the order of 5% to up there about 17%. Uh, what that did was cause a screaming recession, um, the 80s recession. And the argument that Milton gave that this would just be caused a temporary adjustment as people realised the rate of inflation was falling, they'd temporarily have a temporary uh, disturbance and then fall back to equilibrium and there'd be no particular change in the real economy but a huge change in the inflation rate. Instead, of course, we had one of the deepest recessions in the, the, until until the, uh, great, uh, the Great Recession. It was the deepest recession uh, since the Second World War. So how are we classifying money here? So... Um, I, I, in that introduction, I said 97% of money is created by commercial banks. By the way, that number, uh, if you want to check on some of this, another credit to another central bank, the Bank of England's got this whole area on their website called uh, Knowledge Bank. They yeah. actually say 79% of the money today is created by commercial banks, 18% is reserves in the central bank, and the other 3% is cash. Now, you've said how a lot of those reserves perhaps have, have, uh, are actually sitting as bonds. Uh, long I don't know. The, reserve, the reserves are cash, and the reserves are entries in the, in the central bank's 
Uh, oh, yeah. So, yeah. And so that, but what that means that money, nothing else. Yeah. You can't, you can't actually spend it. Yeah. Um, the only way that can be spent is if people take cash out of the bank. And then they, when they take cash out, then the reserves fall. Uh, because the cash is no longer in the banking system. Yeah. So only if, it, only if those reserves are manifested as cash and it turns up as actual part of the money supply. So they've got to make sure they've got that there because they, they've got to settle all these transactions between the between the various banks and uh, and, and meet any any d- demand so that a bank doesn't fall short, basically. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it, it's it's um, reserve settlements. I mean, and again, people think that reserve settlements have a control element over the banks. I believe there's only one country in the world, I think it's Estonia, which requires a bank to have reserves uh, for, to, to enable transactions to occur. So if you go, let, let's just take a hypothetical situation. Your bank is running absolute minimum reserves. It's got 100 bucks in its reserves, and you want to go and buy a new sound system for 1000 bucks. Uh, in any other banking system in the world except Estonia, that would be approved. When that's fair enough, because you expect you've got a thousand bucks, the thing is the thousand dollars. You want to buy it, you hand it over, bang, it should go. The merchant should accept that, even though the merchant is banking at a different bank. So there has to be a reserve transfer between mm. the two banks to make the thing operative. And um, in in, in that's what actually happens because the banks are given, I think in America's case, 30 days or 45 days to reconcile the reserve balances. So they can be a negative reserve balance and still allow a transfer. No. In Estonia, that would not happen because if you the, if your bank only had a hundred bucks and you had a thousand, uh, it couldn't transfer the nine hundred. The, the the transfer would be blocked. Now that causes such panic amongst the public when it does happen um, that most people, central banks say we don't want that level of panic. So they they um, they they let banks operate with negative reserves and give them up to thirty days, forty five days to actually reconcile the reserve balances. I've got, of course, a lot doesn't go through the central bank though. A lot is uh, particularly if you've got a small number of very large banks with a, a similar number of transactions in either direction, they just settle amongst themselves, which is what, why we've got the uh, the interbank, the the LIBOR, the the interbank rate. Uh, which completely bypasses uh, central bank. I mean, you'd assume it's at a, a similar rate to the to the rate that central banks are charging. Uh, well, the markets would assume that they're going to be at, 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 at a similar rate or, or a little bit below. Uh, but, I mean, that's a problem as well, isn't it? Because, first of all, it's another way in which central banks don't have any influence on the, uh, the, the amount of money in circulation or, indeed, how, how quickly it's moving. Uh, and secondly, it's a it's a big disadvantage if you're a small bank because <laughs> you've got to work through the central bank, whereas everyone else is getting a better rate through LIBOR. Yeah, I mean, there are other other you know, technicalities there, but I think we want to I want to come back to the money stock issue because this this vision that you can that the central banks used to have their potency that they could change the amount of money and thereby change the level of economic activity. Yeah, uh, and then and then they got into the belief that they have the the interest rates are uh, the control mechanism, so they can affect people's preferences between consumption and, and, and savings by changing the interest rate. Um, that became part of neoclassical uh, economic models. So what are called dynamic, stochastic, general equilibrium models, which are neither dynamic nor general, but let's leave that issue out. Um, they, they actually built a central bank into their models, and the central bank followed what's called a Taylor rule, where the Taylor rule pretty much said banks were targeting a 2% rate of inflation, and they'd put interest rates up 
one and a half or twice as fast as inflation was charged, changing to target that interest rate, and that would then set the equilibrium in the economy. So if they went from believing they could target monetary aggregates and finding they they couldn't because the the, the, central, the bank the banks themselves control money creation, um, to uh, think they can change control the interest rates, and then of course when the financial crisis came along, what do they do but go back and think they could control the money supply again? And I'm looking at a Interesting little chart here, and people can have a look at it for themselves if they like very easily. Uh, there's a brilliant database called the St. Louis uh, Federal Reserve Economic Database, FRED. Have you ever seen that yourself? Yeah, we have. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We okay, talked, okay. talked about okay. it. Yeah, it's a font yeah. of uh, all knowledge. It's brilliant and very easy to control. So FRED has a survey, survey which is called M1SL, which is money, M1 Money Stock Seasonal seasonally adjusted, I don't know what the L stands for. And if you take a look at that chart, you can see the level M1, which is the, uh, the money in checking accounts and demand deposits, um, uh, fundamentally. That was flatlining, not going particularly anywhere, until bang, 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 the financial crisis. And now it's blasting off the, off the stratosphere. Uh, I'd say the rate of growth has increased by a factor of four, I had a guess, looking at the chart. And actually, I can edit it to get, make it, uh, let's make it in terms of... Uh, uh, percentage changes here. Let's see. Uh, trying to get. And pardon me. I should be doing this live, but hey, this is the, this is our podcast. That's the way we do it. Well. That's the way this podcast okay. works. A percent change from a year ago. Let's just do that and go. Okay. Yeah. Uh, they, the rate of change of money of M M one went from before the financial crisis negative uh, up to eighteen percent during the crisis, and then as high as twenty percent. Uh, in, in November 2011, it's now fallen back down again to around about the three to five percent mark. Mm. But that's not working either. That's that's that was the result of the of the Federal Reserve trying to pump up the money supply through through QE and so on. And they're basically saying we just if nothing we do has any effect. Well, I mean that's interesting, is it? Because it, it it all depends on the type of money that is created. Because um, if I get a loan from a bank. That bank has created the the money, but if I then put it into a long term investment fund and I can't get access to it for five years or ten years or whatever, is that still money? It's not in circulation; it can't be spent. And similarly, if I buy a house, that can't be sold. Well, it can, but not in a hurry, and maybe for less money than I paid for it. So, liquidity is uh, is a big part of this. And I could take something which is very liquid—the money that has been created by my bank—and make it quite illiquid, couldn't I? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that's what you do, but of course, the person you lend the money to uh, puts that money elsewhere in the system. Mm. So there's actually a transfer of money. It goes from you to the financial sector. It's not a, it's not a case of um, of the money disappearing or going out of the money supply, but it turns up elsewhere in the system. And what you then get is you get all these classifications: M1, M2, M3, M4, and finally. They just gave up. Uh, you actually, I think the Federal Reserve stopped recording uh, M3 and broad money 10, 15 years ago. So they, they simply, not only do they find they can't control the money supply, they can't even count it. Mm. And what has happened as a result of that uh, is that you know, they've just basically abandoned monetary targeting completely. But the, the, the wisdom that comes out of that, the 2014 Bank of England paper, which is wisdom of 50 years of post-Keynesian economic theory, and research, I might add, um, that wisdom tells you that if you want to measure the change in the money supply, measure the change in debt because that's what's creating the money supply in the first place. Right. Where it ends up in the system is another story, but you can very accurately measure how much money is being created by measuring change in private debt, which I call credit. And does it matter 
I mean, cause, I mean, the, the the question I wanted to ask you was, how do central banks have more control over the money supply? Uh, but does it matter? I mean, if 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 a commercial bank lends out too much, then they're going to end up having to pay more because they have to borrow more from the central bank. So they're going to have to pay higher interest rates. And obviously, there's regulations as well about how much they can create versus the capital they hold. I'm very cautious about using the word capital versus equity, but I think it is capital they hold. So, so I mean, central banks have sort of like a regulatory influence and they have an influence on you know if you if you really are getting yourself uh, heavily into into the red by creating way too much money um that then it's it's it's, it's going to level out at some point isn't it we i mean they can't go on forever so 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 long as that we've got those controls and we've got you know the fact that you know if you if you create too much then it's going to start costing you more the incremental cost is going to be too high and secondly we're going to regulate you anyway then perhaps we shouldn't be worried about it um, no, I, th- I think uh, what, what what tends to happen instead is you, you're quite right. The, the one way that bank, the central banks control the private banks do, or the government could, is by regulation. Uh, but of course, a huge part of what's come with the whole um, yeah. uh, market is deregulation. Let's let, let's let them self-regulate. Right. Let's let them. Well, okay. Let's 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 go to that first point then. If I if I create a lot of money, uh, then I I need the uh, I need the you know, I need to back that up somehow. I'm going to have to pay for the money to back that up. Uh, and so the, uh, the, the more I create, the more I'm going to have to pay. So so my money becomes more expensive than somebody who's not creating quite so feverishly and doesn't need the same level That's of reserves. That's exactly the mechanisms Austrians think apply in the market, which doesn't right. exist. Right. Okay. <laughs> so, well, at least I put it I, out there. <laughs> yeah, it, it's important <laughs> to put it out there. But, uh, but, but what tends to happen instead is that the the, the control mechanism is actually the willingness of the banks to lever up the equity base they have. So if you have, like, if you start from $100, $100 million and you're willing to have a 10 to 1, then you can create a billion dollars worth of money that way and you make your profit on the on the creation of money plus the margin you're charging of your, your cost of capital. But if you have uh, willingness to go to 30 to 1, mm. then you do a hell of a lot better. However, you are then very exposed to the the volatility of your asset base. Now, of course, what we saw during the financial crisis, and this is one of my favorite lines in economics, by the way, uh, was that Hank Paulson, I think Hank Paulson was Goldman Sachs himself initially, wasn't he? Morgan Stanley, I think it's Goldman Sachs, the the, the vampire squid bank. Um, He became treasury of the secretary. And then when the financial crisis hit with vengeance in 2008, it began in 2007, but the the market started to fall about in 2008. Um, He got a call from his previous company um, saying, look, you've got to do something or we're going to go bankrupt. And the um, and the and Hank Paulson asked, "How long have you got?" And the answer was about three hours. <laughs> now, now, the reason that it was so dire is that when when banks create the loan, of course, they then um, with their own finances, they will then buy and sell other financial assets as well, trying to get more leverage on their asset on the income earning on their asset side and so on. They'll have a diversified portfolio that can include shares. Mm-hmm. And shares in other companies, for that matter, uh, in other banks, for that matter. Um, with if you then have a stock market plunge, and the value of those shares goes down straight away, as soon as the asset markets fall, the price falls, and you've got to then record a fall in your value of your assets. Your liabilities are remaining constant. What takes the hit is your equity or your your capital. Okay, so that's that's that's. The, the thing which catches them out is not that it gets more expensive to do it. There's not a price regulation going on there. They'll get caught up in a euphoric 
period where they're going 10 to 1, 15 to 1, 20 to 1, 30 to 1 leverage, and then bang, uh, the asset markets go in reverse and they're so driven back. how does central bank, because another role of a central bank, obviously, is to ensure that there is, uh, you know, the, the banks don't collapse, that, they, that, that there isn't too much risk being carried in the banking sector. How do they allow that to happen? Why don't they say, well, you know, money that you've got in reserves, you can sit, can sit with bonds. It can't be any, uh, any high-risk capital. That- that used to apply. Again, this is one of the regulations we used to have, and I've forgotten the actual expression for it in Australia. But it Common was sense? That, yes, that's a good start. Okay, but <laughs> hey, listen, common sense and economics, I mean, please, you know. I know. We're talking- they're, not even start, they're not even the same. They're not even the same phylum. Well, we're breaking um, boundaries here. But, I mean, it, it does get down to regulation, doesn't it? I mean, I, I, if we're taking regulations LG, away- LGS was the initial. The, the, the local liquid and government securities, yeah. they were required to keep a certain percentage of their assets in that no matter what. And that was one of the many regulations abolished in the deregulatory uh, frenzy that Milton Friedman fundamentally set off with central banks and then the economic profession cheered them on in the whole process so all these controls basically said let's let the market decide our 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 interventions will make uh, the system less market-based and therefore less efficient and the whole focus upon efficiency ignores another essential element about survival and that's adaptability that's that's diversification that's that's um, resilience and if you're perfectly efficient uh, you can be totally lacking in any resilience whatsoever. And that's what the banks got themselves into because, again, unlike any other business, they can lever up their capital base and make money out of the leveraging. And no other bank business can do that and they should be controlled because that, that is basically a, a bucket of money that they managed to profit out of as, as, as Richard. By the way, we've got a, Richard, I know you're listening. We've got to interview you sometime soon. Let's go together and fill in and work this out, have a, have a conversation, a three-way with you. Okay. Um, that 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 um, that capacity to create that money is such a temptation. They all fall for it. They all get a clap in euphoric loans. The euphoric loans fail, and then bang, the asset the asset base collapses, and you have a financial crisis. That tends to be how banks are regulated. Right, but even before that financial crisis, let's look at the situation where we're in now, where we have uh, where we have very low uh, uh, inflation and very low interest rates, and everyone is wondering, how the hell did we get here? How do we get out of it? How much of that is because banks are just creating too much, or in the past have created too much money, and how much would more banking regulation solve that? Well, that's exactly what got us into this problem. Again, there's far too much private debt. Again, back to Richard's campaign, the private debt campaign, we've got to reduce the level of private debt. He and I have got different ideas about how to go about that. Mm. But because banks create money by creating loans, uh, and because the level of loans they create end up affecting the, the salaries of the and the, and the, the share revenue of the uh, the owners of the bank and the staff of the bank, uh, you get caught in euphoric bubbles that you have us creating too much debt, too much money, and then a financial crisis and a right. crash. But regulation could control that. So we could say, well, okay, we're going to make it harder for you to create money. That is going to keep uh, keep keep a tighter control on the money supply, and that's going to be a healthier situation. The trouble is, then again, people say, "Look, you're, you're restricting commerce," so they get mm. all these sorts of promise uh, problems out of it. I think the old, only way to go about it is really to 
restrict the capacity of banks to lend into what are fundamentally Ponzi schemes, of which housing and shares are the two most obvious examples, uh, because it's lending for those which, whether again back to the, what we, we started talking about, the demand for those assets rises when the rate of change of price of those assets is rising. So you get a positive feedback that actually leads to an amplification of the creation of money and then a crash because a large part of that money is created, as Richard's book explains so well mm. from his own experience inside the, inside the banking sector, so, garbage loans. So you're almost talking about two different types of banks, aren't you? Or at least segregating the way banks operate. So on the one side, you're saying, well, okay, we'll give you loans for your house or whatever for, for non-productive uh, assets. And, uh, and we're, we're going to control the amount of money supply that can be created to support that. On the other side, we'll have, we'll have a whole different uh, model that, 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 that applies to productive loans. Yeah, and that sort of we need we need a sort of structured, diversified uh, financial system, which will the financial system will not do it itself because there will always be hurting mm. uh, when you when there's money being made in real estate, everybody lends into real estate. You've again, got an asset there sitting there, so, so obviously I mean it's a no brainer. Yeah. Rich, Richard will give a, a when we get him on the podcast, we'll give a, a beautiful explanation of how that led to his uh, becoming a, a, a significant banker, because uh, everybody in Texas. But every bank in Texas was lending to oil rigs uh, when the oil price went from $10 a barrel to 40 back during the second OPEC uh, price rise, and then the oil price collapsed. Mm. Now, that, that, that's hurting by bankers, and if any, any, any mob uh, hurts, it's, it's bankers. Uh, that is a sort of behavior that comes out of the market system when you understand it properly, not this period of intersecting chopsticks, but that the real world, particularly the real world of money creation, you can't let banks do that hurting. You've got to have a structured ecosystem of banks. I'm just typing in collective noun bankers into Google to see uh, what it comes out with. I heard of bankers. Uh, Close, a wunch of bankers. A wunch. (laughs) A knot of Scottish bankers. Uh, yeah. A, yeah, there we are. A one, I don't know, a bunch of band, I'm not sure. I hope it's not too rude. Look, we'll leave it there for now. Uh, we will catch you again very soon. Thank you, Steve. You're welcome, mate. There we are. Clear as mud. Uh, I think we might have to revisit this topic a few times, mightn't we, to uh, try and get to the bottom of it all. But I th- hopefully you get the, uh, the gist of the idea about the way banks work and create money and uh, the influence that it has. And that is it for this time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.